My name is Mark Solomon, and this is Never Was. Wasn't the first, nor the last, but everybody knows that. The not being first part, though, that's important. See, about 100 years and demo tapes ago, my band, The Crucified, put out a self-titled album in 1989 on an actual label, Narrow Path Records, distributed by some shady company called Pure Metal and pretty much stole all the money and left the country. But to the point, yes, we got our album out to an audience larger than our local one first, out of the Christian bands, As a result, some folks think of us as the first hardcore punk band from the Christian community, but we totally were not. The truth is, there were plenty of bands before us, they just hadn't been heard yet. Back in the days of fanzines and pen pals, I personally would look high and low for those bands, searching for my tribe, as it were. Eventually, tapes started showing up in mailboxes, and the next thing you know, found some people who might actually let us play some shows with them. They didn't always have the best sounding recordings, as my good friend Chris White will tell you, but they were there playing shows and ultimately welcoming us to share stages with them. For example, Billy Powers' band Point Blank, Rich Carlstedt's band Cross from Southern California, and the godfathers of the whole scene, The Lead from Florida. We played our very first Cornerstone Festival with those guys. For years, the only Christian punk rockers to ever have an actual 7-inch EP, staple item of the 80s punk scene, that's right, the lead, Godfathers. And truthfully, quite a few others I would not be able to remember now. They came and went, appearing for a few shows in here and then just disappearing. I mean, can anyone, anyone get some audio of the Association of the Cross, AOTC, Help me out. Anyway, they came and went. They, they sort of dissolved into the ether, you know. One of those bands who came, went, dissolved, then reemerged as something much more realized are, as I'm sure you've guessed by the show notes, the subjects of today's show. Scattered Few. Spelled S-C-A-T-E-R-D. Okay. Scattered few. Never really understood that. Somehow never thought to ask. I'm sure the answer's out there. I'm just way too lazy to look at it. When I first heard this band on one of Rich Crosstead's Godcore tapes, <laughs> come on, Rich, Godcore. Even then, that was kind of pushing. I just thought, yeah, yeah, what a mess. Beatbox demos. I mean, most bands, Christian bands, not Christian, whatever. Most of them sounded like that back in the day. Live recordings from a soundboard in some rec room. Just muddiness, muddiness everywhere. And then on those very same Godcore tapes, just out of nowhere, Rick Ocasek produced Bad Brain Song. (laughs) Just contrast in productions really stood out there. Back then, of course, there were certain gaps in theology getting filled in, but that's a different story. Gotta make sure to fill the full 60 minutes, you know? 
Anyway, scattered few were on there and they were definitely legit. You know, it was fast, it was rowdy. It's just, they were there and then they were gone. I mean, even from fanzine in the male perspective, they sort of disappeared. And we all just assumed they'd fallen between the cracks like so many of the other bands. Until later. Scatterfew came back from the ether and wow. I mean, I still remember Tim Anderson, the old manager of the Crucified, saying, hey, yeah, Scatterfew's back together. We're going to play a show with him. Oh, side note. One of those bands on the Godcourt tapes was the notorious John Macias's Circle One. Yep. That John Macias, straight from the wig factory. If you don't know the history of John, John's faith, and John's tragic arc, you should look it up. In fact, look up Henry Rollins and L.A. Cops, the John Macias story. That's an interesting tale. But back to Scatter Few. This band, this band, as you'll hear, it's just an amazing transformation from a jumbled mess to artistic, passionate, and forward-thinking music. And for me, One of the first bands from my faith community who understood music was art. The true sign of their transformation in artistry was an album that came out just months after the Crucified self-titled. I mean, really, they should have been first. (laughs) That album was Sin Disease, and it is, more or less, the subject of today's show. 25 years ago. Sin Disease has been released again on Burnt Toast Vinyl for its 25-year anniversary. You should definitely get it, because you know what? It's still so good. I can still see it in my hands at the little Christian bookstore in Fresno. I remember holding the CD in my hand and thinking, this is how you do it right here. Looking back now, I'm as confident today as I was then that this band was important. For Christian people, for where our music was headed, and honestly, for me personally. Here, here's something you might not have noticed back in 1996 from my band Stavesacre's first album, Friction. And incidentally, before we got Scattered Fuse, Sam West to take over drum duties. The Scattered Few I'd known had essentially gone the way of the crucified and a number of our peers. You know, time had passed and people had moved on. But the cool thing about good art never goes out of style. And even then, in 1996, and moving on to my own next page with Stavesacre, I wanted to pay tribute to the early days and the bands of brothers and sisters who inspired me. And yep, there's a little mention in there of a band called The Lead, the aforementioned Godfathers. Someday, Julio. Someday, Julio Ray, we will get you in here. So enough. Enough of me flapping. Let's get to it. We got a long one here, folks. Got a couple special guests, uh, sort of surprise guests, if you will. Got to pay attention. But we're going to start it off with Mr. Alan Aguirre himself. This is uh, one last shot before the next phase and never was begins. One last shot at marking the 25th anniversary of one of the most important albums in the history of Christian people making rock and roll. So please turn it up and enjoy. change in my schedule has been majorly off-putting you know Mm. i'm not used to um 
being gone so much and I miss my wife all the time. Yeah. But then like last year I traveled just as much and it was way worse. So at least with doing this, with doing the NASCAR thing and just the TV thing in general, there's at least like a, a community of people that I see on a regular basis. I mean, when I was teaching the medical software, man, I was just like in the middle of nowhere with no one around me, no one to talk to, no one who will ever see me again. Wow. And, uh, and standing in a room dressed in a suit and tie. I mean, you know, I want you to picture that please me, (laughs) not necessarily a suit and tie, but always a tie and slacks and spending like 25 minutes every night, pressing my clothes or whatever. Oh my gosh. It's been, been far removed from the days of ironing, ironing your (laughs) t-shirts. Yeah. It's not, uh, not the same anymore. What about you? What are you doing now? Well, you know, how do you have all the time in the world? I'm unemployed. All right. <laughs> no, it's not an all right thing. It's just really, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, we're in Utah. We moved here two and a half years ago. We waited 18 years in Dallas to move to Utah. Mm-hmm. This was an actual goal of ours. Uh, it's a quick little story. So in 93 in LA, my wife has a vision of a structure two Sundays in a row. One, the structure was covered with snow. And then another day, uh, and then the following week, the same structure, but like in summer, spring. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, what's going on with this? And the Lord said, this is where you will live. Well, this is pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre-Instagram or Facebook or whatever. So yeah. she described this to me. So in my traveling, I would look for this structure and then have okay. to get to a pay phone to call her to see if this was, you know, to tell her about what I, anyway. So that happened, that went on for two years and uh, we moved to Dallas and then our pastors in LA moved back to Utah, even though he's from LA. They, they used to minister, they were pastoring here, went back to LA. That's where we met them. And we were under them for like eight years during the whole, you know, not married, signe into scattered few transition, the scattered mm-hmm. few thing. Mm-hmm. Then they went, they went to, they came back here to Utah, Park City. Uh, the year we went to Dallas. So a year later, we came and visited. And as you get off the 80 from Salt Lake and you make the turn into Park City, about four miles down the road, right before you hit actual old old town, Park City, my wife goes, there it is. And I, I didn't even look. I just looked at her because I knew what she was talking about. I go, are you sure? She goes, yeah, I'm positive. So we're, we looked at this building from every angle and i'm like can you let's you know pull over what is this he has no idea what's going on and before i answer his question i'm asking him what is this and he goes well it's a historical landmark it represents park city so we're like wow so we told him what was going on and he was like wow and he gave us some really good advice he's like look you know you don't live here you live in dallas don't live here psychologically emotionally mentally you know if this is the lord it'll come to pass well that was 18 years later so we started coming here once a year um, you know, with, with all my various bands, mm-hmm. uh, Spyglass and whatever. And, um, and then finally the doors opened up to move here the, uh, fall winter of 2012. And no, I mean, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, I've known you for a long time, man. Yeah. And I, I can say I've known you since the eighties. <laughs> yeah, man. And I can say that you seem more at home than you have even when you were living in Southern California. LA was rough for us. You know, 
even when you were living in Dallas, which you were so like, uh, you know, staunchly in support of, I, I see a much different um, person now. And I also, I notice, you know, especially from, cause I follow you both, you and Christina on uh, like Facebook or whatever. I see the stuff she posts, man, she kills me with the small town. The uh, police blotter. Police blotter. <laughs> I think it's great. A herd of elk was seen. <laughs> I mean, it really is like that here. I mean, there was, what was the one thing? It was like two youngsters were out being ruckus or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you know, meanwhile, I mean, you know, I drive through Tampa and it's like police cars all covering the streets and, you know, gunfire from a, yeah. a motel. Yeah. We have a helicopter that drives over our house a lot. And, you know, being from LA and stuff, you're, you know, copper choppers, right? No, uh, this helicopter is a private individual that lives about two blocks away. We've watched him land and take <laughs> off. No idea who this guy is, but he needs a helicopter. He just likes his helicopter, oh my gosh. man. <laughs> so we moved here to co-pastor uh-huh. this guy's church, this guy that we were with, you know, in LA that we've been coming and visiting for 18 years. And we've mm-hmm. watched the church grow and shrink and everything. By the time we got here, they had maybe 20 people, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so we came here to help co-pastor that. Think of Chef Ramsay and Kitchen Nightmares. Uh-huh. We came to help a restaurant in need. Okay. and Right? And it's always like four or five things, you know. It's always the same formula. The reason why they're failing is for these three or four or five things. Okay. So we came to help. The restaurants that... Do what Chef Ramsey suggests, succeed, and they get, they're able to go forward. The restaurants mm-hmm. that decide that he doesn't know what he's talking about, close their doors. <laughs> By the end of year one, my professional and spiritual advice was, you need to shut this place down. I don't know what you've been doing for the last 20 plus years here, mm-hmm. but it's a joke. I've got a, my Christian worldview is literally global. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're connected with ministries in Israel and Cyprus and you know, all over the freaking planet, Geneva and all over the U.S., you know. Um, I don't know what these guys have been doing for 20 plus years, but it's, wow. It was bad. Wow, well, maybe it's just. It was really bad. Americanized. Oh, it was, it was even worse than that. You got to remember, mm-hmm. we're in Utah. Mm-hmm. There's something here. I've lived in Central and South America, mm-hmm. and everybody knows about spiritual warfare. Oh, yeah, man. In, in, in Central and South America. It's worse. <laughs> it's worse here. I've been there. It's worse here. I know what that sounds like. I mean, I did. You go to, I've never been in a city as big as Salt Lake that was as creepy and clearly off, you know? Uh, I live here. Standing outside of that tabernacle. Yeah, and the temple. Feeling like there's a million eyeballs looking at me, mm-hmm. even though it's like the middle of the night and there's no one there. I, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Stavesacre was in Salt Lake on tour with far a million years ago. And, you know, we played the show and afterwards I just took a little stroll around town and, and I, I walked down this little kind of sidewalk path next to a little Creek, not a Creek, but like a, a water fountain, glorified water fountain. And on one side is the school or part of the school campus. And on the other side is this temple. And I, sw- I know for a fact that I was being watched. There's no doubt in my mind that someone was watching every move that I was making. Yeah. There's just no way that something so life consuming can't have a spiritual manifestation. I mean, 
I know the difference. I know the difference, man. I've been to El Paso, Texas, dude. I know what it's like to be in the heart of darkness, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ask anybody in the crucified, they'll tell you the same exact thing, you know? I've been to to Louisiana and down in French Quarter. I know when I'm somewhere dark that ain't right. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, well, let me, I'll put it this way. Christianity, evangelical Christianity has an 8% uh, population here in the state. There's only 8% evangelical. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a 92% fell rate. <laughs> and they've been here, you know, just as long as anybody else. They just, they don't have, and I, I've been, of course, I've been asking the Lord about this. They don't have the spiritual authority. I took a drive. I went, I drove up to Stevenson, Washington, and drove back. And as I came through Southern Idaho, which I already know has a large population of, of Christians, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I've got six, seven, eight Christian radio stations on my radio. You know, there's one here, mm-hmm. and this righteous indignation entered into me, and it was like, you know, you've got, you've built this little Christian thing here on the border of southern idaho and utah why don't you cross the border and come two hours down the down the road where i am and and do your christian thing there and you know what the lord showed me they don't have the spiritual authority to cross that boundary Hmm. it's like a carpet's bunched up against a wall and so they so christianity has just bunched itself up like a carpet up against this wall that is the border of idaho and utah Hmm. and they don't have the authority to cross over and come in. But don't they have the authority by default from Christ? I mean, if they're no, his people. No. Remember Paul wanted to go to Asia Minor and the Holy Spirit resisted him three times. And he mm. was supposed to go to Macedonia instead. Remember, then he got a vision of this guy calling him in Macedonia. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they went. The Holy Spirit resisted him going into Asia Minor three times in a row. So so I would say. We do have a proof text for this. But then it's it becomes more. uh the spiritual permission. Yes. They don't have the authority or the permission to come in. So yeah. they've bunched themselves up like a carpet up against a wall. That's what mm-hmm. he showed me. So they've built this whole Christian thing up there in Southern Idaho because they don't have the authority to come over the line. So then you have to ask, well, what the hell am I? Why do I have the authority or why am I allowed here? Why was I called here 18 years ago and waited on the Lord to bring me? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's in the earth. You know, the original Indians here were very demonic. I'll use that word if that's okay with your listeners. <laughs> My listeners are fine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's something else. There's something definitely going on here. The Mormon people, they're nice. I like, they're nice to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm an oddity because we, we don't even live in the Salt Lake City Valley. We don't even live in the Salt Lake Metroplex. We're up in the mountains. And the higher up the mountains and the further back you go, you start running into fundamental LDS polygamists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we've I, I see it. <laughs> we've got them here. It's it's very interesting. You know, Park City is the original sin city. Uh, there was like twenty four cantinas on Main Street, which is maybe a mile long if you're lucky. And you know, it was a mining town. So you've got you've you got a mining town gone chic. And, you know, so they had gambling, prostitution, and, and alcohol. Dude, they, mm-hmm. these people up here, they didn't even, they, they ignored prohibition completely. It was like, <laughs> you, try and stop us. Yeah. You know, it's a wild west. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a lot of Mormon settlements here. It's just, the, the demographic is really interesting. You've got old school ranchers and farmers and LDS and fundamentalist LDS, you know, the polygamists. And then you've got, you know, your Mountain douche from Park City driving his dad's, you know, what? Mountain douche is good. Trust fund babies, you know? Remember rich Uh, kids on Instagram? Yeah. 
You got those guys. There's a lot of money up here, dude. A lot of Californians, a lot of Eastern Europeans. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of wealth here. A lot of wealth. And then you've got your uh, chick with dyed hair and tattoos behind the counter at the coffee shop. It's just, and it's all in a, dude, there's maybe 30,000 people on this mountain where I live. Maybe. Hmm. We've done festivals bigger than that. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a small, it's, it's not, a, it's not, we're not talking a lot of miles, square mileage. And, and it's, it's very interesting. It's absolutely gorgeous. I know, it's man. It's beautiful. I see those pictures of you out there fishing. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I know my old man would be very happy to come and join you. <laughs> oh, you guys, anytime. You guys are welcome anytime. So listen here, man. The purpose for this show today, because I know, you know, you did the As the Story Grows slash Black Vinyl Collective show. I was a little jealous of them because they got to talk to you and I wanted to talk to you about this record. <laughs> and I know that it's, you know, the reissue is coming out and I felt like I would just snatch that opportunity for myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, I wanted to talk to you and to some, some folks surrounding that album and the time that it came out, especially because like all the, what you just said about where you're at now and the, and the environment that you're in now, I think the contrast between that, late 80s Los Angeles time period, you know, and, and and all those shows and the adventures that we had. I think that's a nice contrast, actually. I like the I like this, the way the two lay up against each other, you know? Well, I tell people I'm buying into the mountain life here, you know? <laughs> but, you know, for, for the purposes of the show, and especially this episode, you know, we want to talk about sin disease, man. I mean... Plain and simple. And 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 I, I'm surprised, I'm disappointed, actually, that you were surprised to hear that being such a major influence on me and such a majorly important record for me. That makes me sad because <laughs> that means you don't know. I mean, listen, man. Well, I, you know what? Let me, let me explain that. You and I, we've known each other a long time. I consider you a friend. Mm-hmm. So that friendship is based on this, mm-hmm. not my work or your work. Right. That's what I, that's what I mean by that. Of course, but still, <laughs> but still, I'm a douchebag. No, if you're if you I, if now I, now I'm the mountain douche. <laughs> if I you mountain douche, if I had created a be, a beautiful sculpture, I would want to know that that my friend Alan saw that and thought it was beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Well, sure, sure. So sin disease. Which but that's is, why. But that's why we played a lot together because we we it was such a great compatible wonderful thing uh well i think we played together because we all got along and and it, it made sense i'm i mean i'm gonna get ahead of myself a little bit by well, t- but tapping the, into that but but it's I, not like there, it's not like there were other bands we could choose from though the, yes and no <laughs> all we there had were, were each other. other bands but they would have been <laughs> it wouldn't have worked <laughs> oh my gosh okay so let me here i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a little i apologize for bumming you out for disappointing no, you i it's, <laughs> It's the, it's the best kind of disappointment, though, because then I get to tell you. Like, man, seriously, this is how I knew who Scattered Few was. Before we ever played a show, before we ever did anything, before I ever met you, I met Burrito Pondo and Billy Power, then Bill Power, through this little weird mail chain, you know, sending letters to each other and fanzines and all the stuff. And all of it was actually linked by the one and only Rich Carlstedt of the band Cross. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're laughing. So uh, 
It's okay, Rich. Hey, we this love you, gonna, buddy. This is going to be good. This is going to be good, Rich. Don't brace for pain. Brace for warmth. <laughs> hey, but he's in the, the gym a lot, so he's used to the pain. I know, man. It's like what getting happened? all in shape and stuff. Yeah, he is. tapes you know by way of burrito i i'm introduced to to chris uh, or to rich and um and chris white and all these other guys but you know rich carlstead has these demo tapes that he's sending out he's like you know i don't remember what they were called but but i remember there were these compilations and there was this band on there there were bands that i recognized and bands that i didn't one of the bands, which I hope you remember, Association of the Cross. Do you remember, remember this band? I guess I remember that. Oh, man. If I could get my hands. AOTC. Burrito yeah. was in that, wasn't he? I don't know, but they had a girl bass player, apparently. And uh, and wasn't my buddy Dennis Rudolph in that, too? Man, I don't know anything about him, except that they had a girl bass player with a giant mohawk. And that was, like, shocking, especially in enough. the 80s, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they also had really good jazz. Well, no, 80s Christian. Yeah. yeah. Well, just, it was... Back then, though, there wasn't the distinction made, really. I've been thinking about this a lot, Alan. True. We just played. Like, it wasn't like, are you in a band? Yeah, I'm in a Christian band. You're just in a band. Yeah, there was no Christian scene. The the more I talk about this and the more we discuss it, the more I realize that stuff came about pretty naturally. Eventually, you just couldn't play shows anymore. or, or, Or eventually, enough people heard about a band that had the same beliefs as them, so they went. So I think the Christian rock thing sort of developed after that 80s period, you know? Because back yeah. then, dude, I mean, Crucified played with probably five or six bands made of Christian people on a regular basis. Everyone else we played with was just any band. It was just any yeah. band. Anyway, I get this demo tape. It's seriously, something as exotic as Christian hardcore comp one, comp two, and comp three. <laughs> but there's like... Association of the Cross, and then of course, like four of Rich and Burrito's bands, Cross, Conviction of Sin, Public Confession, all these different bands that were all basically the same band, I think. And then Circle One. Oh wow, they were on that comp. You, I remember uh-huh. I remember John. Because the gospel was on there and uh, uh, what was the other band that was surprised? Oh well, of course, Bad Brains were on there. How funny. And then Scattered Few. Like the first time I ever heard Bad Brains Coptic Times was on a Rich Carl's Dead compilation. How funny. Okay. Like I was copping everybody. Oh, yeah, man. It was uh, very, very free. Very free. Oh, so I get this, this demo tape and 
You know, it's, I mean, it's recorded on some guys. He probably did it on his double cassette player at home or something like that. But I hear this song, Anti-Ape. And I was like, what is happening with this band? (laughs) And it's like really like condensed. It probably was recorded on like a beatbox or over the house board or something like that. And I was like, ah, it just does not sound good. So a couple years later, which at the time felt like 10 years later, because, you know, we're time was slow then. We're kids, you know, a couple years later. Oh, my gosh. This band scattered few. They're they're still a band and we're going to play with them. They're going to be at this show. And I remember all of us talking about all the crucified guys talking about it. Like this, what are they going to be like? This is going to be weird. I wonder what they're going to sound like. And we got there and it was like, Flesh for ears and flesh for eyes Deteriorize the God in disguise Like weird and giddy Wasting away in the trance of the chameleons With cycle games Spirits is willing and the flesh still weak And corpses slay right in corpses still Walk in the flesh and your members of sin will be down in your place for your death in the Players name before Jamie. Well, we had that. Well, Paul Paul played in the band Diggs. originally, yeah, because uh-huh. he was the original choice, but he couldn't make a commitment. So then we found this guy. We, we were his name was Ed, but we called him Ed Lover. <laughs> Ed, was he the big black dude? Big black guy. Yeah, I remember that guy. In fact, a couple. Well, one of the shows we'll refer to later, he was that for sure, especially because it was such an <laughs> awkward moment. But uh, I just remember seeing this band as like very diverse and the music has got its own kind of vibe. It's, it's, there's, it sounds fully thought out. The music sounds fully thought out and not just how fast can we play? How many different changes can we put in here? Where's the breaks? Where are we going to all jump? You know what I mean? It was like, there was like real songs happening. And once, you know, we had gotten to play a few shows and, and I got a little bit of of a grasp on the music, then sin disease came out and it was so humbling, you know, cause we thought we were, we were pretty badass. I mean, you know, it's crucified, man. We're playing all these shows, (laughs) la, 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 la. And, you know, we had just put out this, this record on pure metal and, it was, you know, we thought it was pretty great. So along comes sin disease and I'm like listening to it like, oh my gosh, we have a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and part of me is I'm almost done, but sin disease came out. It, it, it blew my mind the, and we are definitely going to dig in on that record. But what happened was you and I were sitting in a car or something somewhere and we're talking and you just looked at me and you go, Mark, I love The Crucified, but man, I cannot listen to your record. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, like, I was like, damn, you know, <laughs> but, but then I realized like, there's more to this than just recording the songs. You gotta think about the, the way they're going to sound in the final result. And, and, and I had never really considered that, you know? Yeah. And like, I just had Renee Vasquez on the show, you know, we're talking about Gene Eugene, all that. And, 
and and the Terry Taylor era and and like I think Sin Disease was the first time I had listened to music by by someone I knew and thought I gotta figure out how to get there. Mm-hmm. We got to figure out how to get that kind of sounding. I don't know. We need to figure out how to get that confidence. That's that's quite a compliment. Well. I'll tell you what else, and this should be taken as a compliment by you, is uh, after that, shortly after I talked to you about that, and shortly after we heard Sin Disease, we were going into the studio the next year, 91, to do Pillars of Humanity. And- well, for, ocean, for Ocean Records, mm-hmm. right? In mm-hmm. Burbank, across the street from beep beep Ah, beep beep uh, yeah, dude. <laughs> Brian Carlstrom hated that place. So, Oh, that was the best place on earth. <laughs> I loved it. $3 for a burrito as big as your head. So anyway... Um, when our when we went in there, we went in with that mindset, like we're gonna try to make an album, not just record all the songs we have. Yeah. That was probably the distinction. Like I heard Sin Disease and I heard an album. I hear the crucified self-titled and I just hear a bunch of songs yeah. that we have written up until this point. So when we went to do Pillars, that was our goal to make an album, you know? And after it came out. You like totally gave me a hug and we're like, dude, I love it. I love what you did. And it made me feel like a million dollars. Between the ages of 22 and 25, okay. leading up to reforming Scattered Few, mm-hmm. the, the gap between both Scattered Fews, the original 83 version and then the version everybody knows, Right. I did Signier. Okay. And that was my most prolific songwriting period, in my opinion. And that's where I really, I think, honed my abilities and my craft. It does help when you're, when you're modeling after someone as amazing as David Bowie. I mean, mm. let's, let's just say what's really going on here. Well. But it's obvious in the fact that this guy did real work from, you know, for such a long time. Mm-hmm. When you try to top that when you, or, or try to meet it, not that I, I'm not saying that I've ever done that, but you're going, it's going to force you to really think about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I think, and, and, and I know that Signier really afforded me that opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. And then, so by the time, because I mean, I was amazed at the thought of, I shut down Signier, restarted Scattered Few, put it all together, started doing shows, signed to Frontline, put out Sin Disease, and then played Cornerstone and where it was released. All that happened in 10 months. When I realized that, 
that was that's scary. That doesn't happen. Because <laughs> somebody goes, well, how did how does that happen? I'm like, well, I mean, I, we worked really hard, but there was just that momentum. There was a momentum thing going on. Yeah, and I mean. Because, I mean, I went from Signe, literally playing the L.A. club scene, mm-hmm. K-Rock, local music shows, L.A. Weekly, doing that whole Signe thing to, to, to Scattered Few and, and Cornerstone. That's a massive shift because it's two different worlds, mm-hmm. literally, two entirely different universes, mm-hmm. not just musically or visually, but just conceptually, sure. psychologically. And that transition, it all happened in 10 months and we were in a cornerstone and I'm like, wow, here we are. I want to say the first show we did with you, with the reformed scattered few, that rock of love thing, wasn't it that? I, I believe it is. I believe it is. I mean, there may have been something else before that where we briefly saw each I, other. Well, yeah. I remember, I think I, I showed, because, okay, I'm in this new scene. I don't even know it exists. I know nothing about this thing because I was playing the regular yeah. general market circuit, you know, with the K-Rock and all that crap. So there's this, and, and of course, everything's in Orange County. Mm-hmm. So I, I know I showed up to a couple shows and I think that's where we met. And yeah. you mentioned, you mentioned, well, you should go, there's, you know, you mentioned that Pat was there because he was setting up to play a show. Mm-hmm. And so I walked to him and I go, dude, what, what kind of crap are you going to do tonight? And he looked at me like, and then he realized who it was. We hadn't seen each other in six years. Wow. I don't know if you know this, but Pat, we used to hang out in 83 with the original Scatterfew. He was an Immortal Youth. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So he had a he had a little punk rock band called Immortal Youth in 83. You're talking about shows. Pat Taylor, right? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. And so we did shows in 83 together. Wow, with the original scatter few things. So I'm at this show. There's it's a whole new scene. There's all these Christian youth or whatever you want to call them at this show. I you know, we had known, I knew about you. I think we we had communicated and I and and we talked at this show. You told me Pat was there, so I wouldn't surprise them. And that was I think when we were still trying to figure out what we were doing. Yeah. Before we before we were really actually doing shows, we were I think putting the idea of a new scatter few together again. And then the show with the uh, with that awesome T-shirt that I don't have anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad, man. You should have that shit. <laughs> I don't know. You, know, you know what? You know what? I, I correct myself. I bet you I probably do have it. I actually, I literally have a, it's everybody makes fun of me, you know, cause you know, we live in community, mm-hmm. you know, so my, I'm talking wife, kids and non-family members. They all make fun of me because I have like two boxes. Buried treasure. Of shirts, of shirts mm-hmm. that are squished and compounded that have been sitting <laughs> like that for 25 plus years or whatever yeah. that, you know, world cup and bands and yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm I, I, I bet you. I bet you it's in there. I hope that it is. That would make me feel good. (laughs) What was awesome about it was you didn't just show up with a black power shirt on. Okay. (laughs) You like sashayed across the stage (laughs) and then like slowly revealed it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like a A subtle moment. No, it was, it was, it was not like this forceful thing where you're going to like, pound somebody with it but it also wasn't subtle it was very much like dun, 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 reveal you know <laughs> like, oh like, my gosh you know okay okay dudes, man one of the girls that lives here with us she calls it it's my walmart walk apparently when i walk into walmart i have a certain walk <laughs> and it's that walk apparently it's the same walk i would use across the stage oh, <laughs> so, and, like 
there's, you know, later on in life, watching the Chappelle show with the Clayton Bigsby episode where he, when he's a Klansman, black Klansman, he removes his hood and they see that he's black. And one of the guy's heads explodes in the, in the audience, you know, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's what happened at that show. (laughs) Because I mean, it was just too close. It was too much for them. They're already bummed that there's this, you know, that there's someone on stage that isn't white and, and let alone more than one, like what in the world we're getting taken over, you know, and it's orange County and I've I've got dreads. Mm -hmm. So that shirt comes off or comes out and it was just like pink dust exploding (laughs) everywhere, you know, (laughs) uh, from that point on, like, I feel like we must've played, I don't know. It was kind of weird and felt a little, a little strange because uh, for whatever reason, we ended up playing in that order for so long. And it made sense to me. I, I remember, uh, oh, I, I always told people we have to play before the crucify because, because you guys were thrash. So it didn't make, it would be an actual, it would, it would be a dip if you guys went before us. To me, it always made sense. It's just, a and I've, and I've even, though, you know, yeah, it is. But I've, I've even said, you know what? If, if Scattered Few ever got together, let's say we got together right now and we did six shows, mm-hmm. it would have to be with you guys. And it, it would have oh, to. Man. It wouldn't work any other way. We would have to do that run, those six shows. I even know what six cities we would have to play. <laughs> and the Crucify would have to be on the bill and we would have to play before them. Uh, I'll, I'll say that. I, I'm saying it now because it's the truth. How fun would that be, man? Oh, oh my gosh. I don't Although, know if anybody likes I, I don't know I don't know if anybody likes me enough to do it. Ah, <laughs> they can at least have the opportunity to tell you in person why they oh don't. Oh my gosh. <laughs> in the very beginning of the 90s, which everyone has, we've, has been talked about at nauseum. I'll probably talk about it in the intro to this show, you know, where there was like this shift happening. Yeah. And it wasn't just in music. It was in pop culture and it was in like culture, like American culture and society, you know, like it wasn't just the death of hair metal or, or corny metal, as I like to think of it, but it was a, also a big change in the way people talked about everything, uh, the way um, the world was represented in the world around us, I should say, society was represented in the media and everything from music to film to television or whatever. There was like this big shift happening, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, like when I hear Sin Disease, when I listen to the album, it's alive. That change is alive in the record. You know, there's, 
it's not just in the lyrics, although it's there. It's in the music. It's in the production. It's in the overall presentation of an album's worth of music, as opposed, again, like I said, as opposed to a bunch of songs that you had written up until then. Even little bits and pieces like, you know, Groovy or, or, or Kill the Sarks 2, which is, you know, seems like just this big long thing or whatever. I noticed little moments throughout the album that, that really just sort of captured that time period. songs ever since I first got that album. That's, I don't listen to Christian bands most of the time, not because they're Christian bands, but because most of them I'm not really that interested in. But when I got, when you sent me the, the, the new version of it and I'm up there working that lonely 
medical job, I was like, I need to listen to this. I need to like hear something familiar, you know? And dude, it just took me back, man. It took me straight back to that time period. And that's what I think is so awesome about it is that it was capturing I can feel the sweat in the San Fernando Valley. You know what I'm saying? Like I can feel it, man. Uh, I, I can, you know, walking down, uh, walking down Hollywood Boulevard, listening to music in my headphones. Like that time period is there in that record. So I don't know, man, kind of what you got, what, what was going on when the album was being written? What, what was going on? There's so much, yeah. Happening there. What was what was going on with you? Well, we had just shut down three and a half years of, of Signier, you know. Mm-hmm. Signier was a dark wave band I did. I started in 86. So I, I really honed my skill set as far as, you know, music business, uh, songwriting, mm-hmm. arranging, uh, studio production, pre-production, all that stuff. I really, Signier is really where... I figured all that stuff out. You know, I was, we were constantly being, we were constantly on K-Rock. We were doing their local show. They were playing us on the radio. LA Weekly loved us. I mean, it was really happening for us. Mm-hmm. So there was, so when I made the transition from Signier to Scattered Few, I was absolutely equipped in every facet and every, all cylinders were firing. The confidence was there. I knew because we had a, a foundational groundwork of what six or seven years of like uh, underground cult status, or even mm-hmm. just that mis- that whole mystery about it, since there was nothing tangible there, um, I knew that because somebody had I had a, a fresh flower bed, you know, that was already <laughs> the ground was already tilled, toiled, and mm-hmm. all that. I just needed to come in and and drop some seed and water it, and it was going to blow up. I, I just I knew that, so there was all this confidence. The skill sets were there, you know. I mean, I've got Omar on bass. Um, Drew's gonna Dude. play keyboard. I've got Paul Fig on guitar. We had just done. We had we had you had Sam West on drums. We we, we went I and mean, found Sam. We didn't have Sam. We found him, you know. Dude. And so the pieces were there. You know, it was a dangerous band. The the the, the pieces as far as the band were their abilities the individual abilities and skill sets and, and what I had honed as Signier and, and working, dude, you know how hard it is to break a band in LA? I do know. Right. And I was accomplishing and meeting goals in that effort. And now I've got a whole, I have a clean, a brand new canvas to paint on mm-hmm. called Scattered Few. <laughs> so I went for it. You know, yeah. I had nothing to lose. I was Every, people would call it arrogant, but I, man, I was incredibly confident at what we were going to be able to do because of what I had just done in the secular scene in LA. Yeah. But there's, I got to say, dude, I mean, you got musicians that are playing with that band that nobody, look, I'm a singer in a band, you're a singer in a band, right? You could probably play some instruments. I can't play shit, but <laughs> I could tell you this, you can't operate in that confidence unless you've got that foundation and i mean a rhythm section of sam west and omar is ridiculous dude that's ridiculous lights out 
ditch the truth a little while Color fascination is spreading across the nation Fascism style I understand the need for men to clan together A bullet in your hands, remember Cora Like packs of dogs I ran forever Involved, did you feel like you were with the actual writing of the songs and the recording of the songs? I wasn't involved in any of the writing. Okay. The record was was pretty much written when I arrived. Okay. Uh, and I I had answered a recycler ad. <laughs> That's remember those? Yeah. Yeah. The recycler. Uh, yeah. Alan and Omar had put a, an ad in the recycler, and I responded to it, and. Uh, Went and auditioned, and at that audition, Omar told me in no uncertain terms, "I'd better know how to play." <laughs> that was one of the first. That was one of the first things Omar ever said to me. Hi, that you, you, you better, better know, know how to play. play. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And turns no out, pressure. Turns out, uh, yeah. No, he was fine after we got done. You know, I I I learned all the songs. I had demoed uh, four track the material, so I, I was prepared. Okay. And he was happy, and Alan was happy. So they still didn't have a guitar player at that point. And, uh, but the, the songs were already written. Like Alan and Omar had written them yeah. prior to me showing up. So I can't take any credit for how awesome the songs were, other than just my contribution in playing. Yeah. So when you came in, you said there was no guitar player. Who ended up playing guitar on the album, ultimately? Uh, the, the rhythm tracks were done by a guy named Eddie Evans, for the most part, a guy that I knew that I had played in a band with. And he uh, he started recording, and he did all the rhythms, and he may have played a couple leads. I, I wasn't there for over a lot of the overdubs either. Okay. But then he quit. He had a His wife didn't think that that album was going to further his career. Uh, it was kind of okay. the, the way he presented it to everybody when he quit. And uh, But he did do a show with us, as you may remember. He was our, the the imposing black man that really knew how to play guitar at that <laughs> one show. Yeah. He was a great guitar I player. That yeah. Guy. That's Eddie. But you know, it's, I guess it probably wasn't his thing either. You know, it's not, nothing to I don't want yeah. to bag on the guy. Cause he was a, a really great guitar player. And then, uh, I think, uh, Gene and Terry had a couple guys like Greg flesh played, uh, some overdubs and gosh, I don't remember. I know there were some other guitar contributions there, but that's the one that, sticks out yeah and then uh we did some pre-production with terry at uh i want to say awesome audio was bam bam's place i can't remember this guy that uh mark that had a at a rehearsal slash recording studio in north hollywood that we kind of worked on some of the the arrangements with terry pre-recording okay and we just went down and you know uh, frontline had those two studios they had the they, they called them A and B studio, yeah. Mm-hmm. And stu- Studio B was the green room, and I did all the drum tracks at Studio A. And we had Dave Raven came in, and he was our drum tech, and that guy's a ripper. And it was really cool to work with him. He's, huh. you know, I'd never been, I'd never recorded an album. I'd done it a bunch of demos, but I was 22 at the time. I was a youngster, so <laughs> uh, 
I was super wow. young, super green, and you know, like having a guy like that just kind of bring the calm into that weird, like you know, I didn't know Terry, I didn't know Gene, I didn't, yeah, really know Alan and Omar at that point. I mean, I never knew, I never knew Terry. I've never known really. I mean, I, I think we've probably said hello, how are you to each other a couple times, but I don't really know him. Do you remember much about your interactions with him in there? He's a great guy, you know, had had a huge history prior to us. You know, he'd done a lot of recording, a lot of uh, sort of seminal recordings with uh, DA. And they were swirling eddings, swirling eddies, excuse me, were kind of happening at that point. I can't remember what records were happening, but there were swirling eddies records that were going on. So there was a lot of talk about that stuff. But I just remember being super cool and super encouraging. And then ever since yeah. then, whenever I've run into him, which it's been a long time since I've run into him, but it's always been very kind and, you know, just he's just a nice guy. He's a good dude. And know? of course, Gene Eugene having as much to do with the album. I mean, I, I yeah. got to know Gene over the years, but, you know, man, back then, he was such an in- intimidating person to me. <laughs> you know, like, it's <laughs> See, funny I didn't because have later, that. you know. He's not that guy. I didn't have that experience with him. Yeah, no, he was just like super gentle and super just knew the ins and outs, had that room dialed in. And, uh, yeah. you know, I can remember on that record, there's this sort of indulgent final track. <laughs> right. <laughs> it goes on for like seven sort or eight of. minutes, sort of <laughs> indulgent. Uh, kill the and Starks. the two of them, kill the Sarks too. like sort of feeding off each other to come up with another uh, corny <laughs> addition to like overdub. And, I'm, okay. You know, anyone that's familiar with the record, like they took, I hope I don't, I, I, there's no way I'll get anyone sued for this, but they, uh, they sampled the Beatles. I think it's on the white album where it's number nine, number nine, number nine, but someone right, right. overdubs number eight, number eight. <laughs> this is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> right. And that's those two guys <laughs> just like kind of feeding off each other. How can we make this more? And even that, uh, <laughs> that chord before, at the end of the musical part, I think it's a big G or something like that on the piano is directly from a Beatles song. Just like the end of uh, <laughs> Day in the Life, that big piano chord, that dun. It's like, you know, they're just in there, you know, they thought they were funny. <laughs> and they were. Yeah. It, was, it was hilarious. I'm sure no one really got the, the inside baseball sort of comedy right that was going on in that there's there's a lot of hidden comedy in that last track you know i think about some of the songs on there you know one minute it's it's doing the like fast punk rock and then next minute there's like reggae music or whatever and then there's sort of some things in between and the the natural tendency especially because of the relationship with hr and all that stuff is to compare the band to to bad brains but i don't really think that it sounds like bad brains to me i mean the music, sure, there are there's some reggae and there's some punk rock, and that way it's similar. But the punk rock didn't sound like Bad Brains at all, and the reggae didn't sound like Bad Brains to me. So, did you already kind of know the vibe? Had you played any shows or anything like that before you did this record, or you just went in and jumped in there and did it? If I did, it's hard to remember. It was only one or two. Yeah, and I didn't even play that reggae song. Alan played drums on that. Uh-huh. That's all Alan because they were like, "Dude, you don't know reggae," and I didn't at the time. I, you know, I learned it eventually, yeah. but I had no idea what how to play a reggae jam you know it takes a little you got to get into that headspace you, you know what I'm you saying? gotta have that thing yeah, going you gotta have that thing going <laughs> uh and alan and omar were you know definitely masters of it already so uh and in terms of that stuff i i didn't play the one reggae song and even that fast punk rock you know like all that stuff i was kind of you know i learned those songs and i kind of made them my own but i i kind of 
came in, like I said, pre, the songs were pre-written with a drum machine. It wasn't, I don't think it felt like a Bad Brains record. I think there were other things happening at the time that, that were probably more influential, although Bad Brains were uh, definitely Jane's Addiction. You know, Peter Murphy, Bauhaus, that kind of stuff. Although that, it doesn't, it, it, that more peeks through in uh, sort of Alan's delivery, you know, Bowie, that type of stuff. Do you remember anything about the recording of Sin Disease that like sticks out in your head? I mean, I mean, when Stavesaker was making records, I feel like we always had like, you know, a couple moments every time in the studio that we vividly remember. Does anything recall stand out in your head? Yeah, there's one There's one story, and it's me totally chunking a take. And it's like back when we're recording two, on 2-inch. Two right. I want to say it was Glass God is the name of the song. Mm-hmm. Had a great drum take all the way through. And then there's this like this last, you know, 30 seconds of the jam where it's like, you know, sort of like a halftime part. Yeah. And for some reason, I totally just failed. And you can't punch in on 2-inch. At least that's what it, I was told. Right. But I was like almost to the end and everybody and at Studio A, they had these video monitors for whatever reason, because there wasn't glass between the control room and the, the tracking room. Okay. So I had a TV monitor where I could see everybody sitting in the control room and they had a monitor where they could see me playing. Mm-hmm. And I could see the just like, oh, when I failed and like, oh, we gotta <laughs> do it again. And and uh Gene. Like, like Terry's like, oh man, that take was so good. Wow, what are we gonna do? So you know, Gene gets out the razor blade. Oh yeah, Brian Carlstrom style. We rolled it out, and like I played the last part of the song again, and then Gene spliced it together. And good. studio magic, kids. That's how it works. You think your favorite drummer is uh, perfect? Is all that? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> F minus. of the sound of the album came through uh terry taylor and gene eugene i mean right because at, at my at my take and i'll be honest with you back then i didn't really i was not never a daniel amos fan i wasn't i just didn't wasn't my band you know mm-hmm. and so i wasn't really sure and then you know this album comes out and it has its own sound and i know terry and and gene were a part of the production would you say that they were hands-on there? Was it was it a joint effort? Uh, I'm going to say it's a joint effort and hands-on. Here's here's the best way for me to explain it. I had worked with Terry in the past. I, I mm. we, he knew me. I knew him. He was he he was aware of my capabilities not only as a musician but as a producer and an arranger. So mm-hmm. all I had to do was show up with my guys who already know what their worlds are. They already know how to play their part. Gene Eugene's going to capture it as an engineer. He's going to capture it properly. Mm-hmm. He's going to capture it the way it's supposed to be captured when it comes to a commercial standard or level of recording. 
right? Because mm-hmm. when you're when you're at when you're like at the green room or at, well, before it was a green room, right? When you're at Studio A or Studio B, Frontline Studio A or Studio B, mm-hmm. you know you're working with real tools versus paying somebody $15, $10, $15 an hour in North Hollywood, right? <laughs> right to get right. That, that demo. To hopefully get it. Right. right. So mm-hmm. we're in a proper room with proper gear, and we've got a proper engineer in Gene Eugene to capture what we're throwing down at, at a commercial, you know, professional level, right? Mm-hmm. At, at that standard, market standard. Gene and Terry had already been making records together for years, by then see so gene's part of the package so terry as a producer his first guy to engineer is now gene eugene it was doug doyle back in the day over at maranatha wow so now you've got so they're they're, so they almost come as a package as a pair yeah yeah so i have the amazing opportunity and the amazing privilege and honor to sit there and watch Gene and Terry communicate without words. That's ridiculous. <laughs> right? Just, I mean, because Terry, because mm-hmm. Gene already anticipates Terry's, what Terry's going to want or need. Terry, since I already knew him and we had already, we had already worked together. I remember Terry and I did a record together in 1983. I didn't know that. Right. What album did you, it, was that? It's the, it's the recordings that we, that, it's our, they're on some, oh, yeah. some of the stuff's the on attic. Out of the Attic. Right. Mm-hmm. We went in and did 11 songs in two days with Terry Taylor in 1983. Hmm. So we, we, we have a relationship, you know, we've, we've hung yeah. out since then. So I already know, he already knows what to expect from me. I know to expect from him. Terry is basically kind of like just a den mother making sure everyone behaves, you know, I mean, not, but not, <laughs> but not because there's not going to be any misbehaving. He's mm-hmm. kind of, he's pretty much hands off at this moment because we're coming in and we're laying down the basic tracks. That's Gene's problem. We're going to come in and do what we do. Gene's going to capture it properly. Now, now it's time for overdubs. Okay, now Terry's going to roll up his sleeves and start getting involved with that uh, tone. Putting uh, there's a there's a thing that Greg Flesh was it? I forgot if it was Greg Flesh or Greg from uh, Adam again. But we put paper in the guitar and it came up and it made this weird sound and you can hear it on some of the songs. Huh. That's like Terry. Terry now Terry's bringing the production aspect of it mm-hmm. because Terry's always going to go. Terry knows that I know what I want. He knows that I know mm-hmm. my scene, my genre. So he already knows what, I, what I'm going to want. And I'm telling him, this is what I want. He's just making sure we're capturing it. But Terry, the producer, comes in. So, for example, the amazing background vocals of Ricky Michelle on, oh, on yeah. Freedom Cry. That's Ricky and Gene. They're married at the time. That's mm-hmm. Gene and Ricky by themselves in the room with nobody else in there. Gene doing Gene. He's Gene's doing what Gene does. Right. Do I have to oversee it? Am I going to concern myself about it? Absolutely not. Why am mm-hmm. I going to even, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to step out of the way. That's the strength of knowing what you can and cannot do. But here's, but here's freedom cry. Freedom cry is lay a click track at this BPM. I'm going to go sit down and play drums to that click track. And then Omar's going to come. Then I'm, then after I lay these drums, we're going to build a song. Omar, lay a bass part. Lay, lay a bass part over that. So that was written right there in the studio. I, if I believe, I believe so. Yeah.
like you had said before when we were talking, uh, whoever came into the studio, you jump in there and sing. You know, was that was that Scatter Few album, mm-hmm. the Freedom Cry? I mean, was that one of those scenarios, or you just happened to be there that day and? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had a clearer memory of of recording that. When I went back and listened to the song, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that song. <laughs> but I don't remember recording it that day. Um, Terry, you know, Terry and I were really good friends. And um, didn't he, he produced that record, right? Yeah, Terry Taylor, Terry, yeah. I think Gene was also in the production credit, but yeah. Yeah, that's so, yeah so I'm sure that they both snagged me, you know, and I, I was friends with the guys too, the guys in the band. Okay. And um, like they had come to my birthday party and we were always hanging out at the studio. So it was just one of those times where we're all hanging out at the studio and they're, they're like, you know, want to come and sing on this record. I'm sure it wasn't like, a super well thought out plan. It was probably just because I was there. <laughs> See, but that's so cool. It's like, I mean, I'm going to rave about that record plenty as it is, but it's a great record. It's a great record. And that song to me represents not only a change of perspective, you know, cause they could have easily gone through the whole album, just all been punk rock songs. Maybe a couple of them more like theatrical tracks, you know, the Bowie influence and, and all, but but to drop that song right there in the middle of it, and it's such a lovely melody, and your melody is like, I mean, it stands out immediately. So there's like all these punk rockers that, you know, they might know who Adam again is. Mm-hmm. They might know who Undercover is. But in truth, like for, for a lot of folks, we weren't trying to hear all that stuff. We wanted to hear the fast stuff, you know? Yeah. And that record, the, the Sin Disease album, was a huge part of myself being able to see there were more aspects to music and i to this day still will i'll listen to the whole thing all the way through but freedom cry and your voice on there is so lovely and i'm telling you you got all these people on the periphery who totally know that jam (laughs) they totally know that jam that's nice I, i i really like hearing that i i'm a big fan of that tension you know i love when punk rock bands or hard rock bands put in some sweet melodies and sweet yeah. harmonies. I think it's a, I think it's a great, it just does something to your heart, you know? And, I, yeah. and what is he, what is, what does Rumald Allen go by now? Did he, goes he change by, his name again? He goes by Allen. Okay. Allen, mm-hmm. he has such a uh, richness to his voice when he slows down oh, and yeah. sings melodically that um, I just, I love those moments on records when, you get sort of a glimpse of another side, you know, it kind of like rips you in a way that you, it's unexpected. It's, ah. it's mysterious. Take you to my reproof. Don't reject me because I'm young. We're here for Yahweh, glory to magnify his son. in the church yeah a, a lyric i never picked up until i started experiencing division in the church like that song dude let me tell you what i love about that jam 
it's conversational, dude. There's a conversational element to these songs, to DITC, to to the song You, Division in the Church, Matt. It's, I can hear you standing on the corner with some dudes <laughs> just talking shit. I mean, that's what I love about it, though, is it puts me right back there, you know? And, and it turned out to be sort of a prophetic sort of look, you know? I don't think any of us anticipated how much division would come later on, but you know, I hear songs like that. I hear songs like you that those kind of intense, fast moments that made it perfectly fine for us to play shows together. But then you could like change things up and take it a completely different direction with some of these more like lighter tunes or tunes that took a little more artistic approach rather than speed and intensity. Right. Like looking to my side or something. That song (laughs) That's a Signier song. I have been obsessed with that song. But and it's in the context, look, man, yeah. I'm not trying to bum you out, but I don't know nothing about Signier. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, it doesn't bum me out. I'm just putting putting uh, time and place on that. What I know is Scattered Few. Sure. And the combination of those songs all together yeah. works way better than just a bunch of fast jams. Like, I never wanted the next album to be more fast stuff. You know what I mean? I wanted the same balance of just like, let's do some of this, do some of that. I want to disappear for an hour while I listen to this record Mm -hmm. and go through all the different ways that it feels to drive from Topanga Canyon and Van Owen all the way to um, downtown Los Angeles. I want to be able, I want to feel the same way it would feel to do that. And that's to me, that's what that record does for me is it, it puts me in Los Angeles at that time. Yeah. It to me captures that hot, sweaty, <laughs> smoggy, <laughs> smoggy, crowded vibe. But then also there's those moments like looking to my side or as the story grows that are so gentle and so sweet. And then, you know what I can hear there, man? I can hear Huntington Beach in the middle of the night. That's a sound that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Okay. Los Angeles in the middle. Okay, even better. PCH. PCH or, <laughs> or uh, you know, when we were playing all those shows together, we spent a lot of time in Carson and the South Bay. And in the middle of the night, the South Bay has this sound. The cloud cover is there and you can hear the buzzing of the power lines. You can always hear traffic somewhere because <laughs> there's no escape in it, you know? Yeah. But that like... There's just this this motion in the air. It's a hum. That it's a hum. To me, I hear songs like those, and that that puts me right there. I, only people, and this is, should be taken as a compliment, who were able to capture that more a- adequately for me would be like Greg Dooley and the Afghan Wigs, like or or, or uh, Twilight Singers. Like they have that is Los Angeles music. So when I hear this record, it puts me back where I where I belong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear Florida when I listen. (laughs) That's awesome.
take a look. So I was really involved with what I was doing, I guess, because, I mean, you got to yeah. remember, I have two small children at the time. I've got a three and three-year-old and a two-year-old and we're pregnant. Wow. You man. know? Yeah. Um, so I've got, I'm about to have three. By the time Sin Disease came out, I had three kids. You know, and they were from between the ages of four and months old, you know, four years yeah, old and yeah. six months old. So I was a little busy. I'm trying to balance a, ba- a, a young baby family, trying mm-hmm. to balance a marriage. Um, you know, I'm, it would still be two years before I would f- quit doing drugs. So mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of goofy stuff going on in my life where I'm like trying to cooperate, but I haven't cooperated fully. Right. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, it was a, it was a, it was a heavy time for me, man. It was a beautiful time. And I still like, man, that record came to the rescue. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I remember what I remember. I really do remember. I was confused at the amount of people that were coming to these shows. Why did they, why were they coming to these shows? Were they really interested in Jesus? Because I, it's not that I, and I've said this before in other interviews, it's not that I wasn't interested in Jesus. I never mm. once came to a point where there's no God, there's no Jesus, he's not Messiah. Right. The narrative isn't true. No, I, ne- I never have, I've never have had that problem. The reason why I had been backsliding or backsliding was because I feared the responsibility of the calling on my life. Of course. You know, that, that was a problem. That's why anybody backslides, man. You, you, if you, any person, who says, oh man, I just can't keep, I just can't stop effing up or whatever. You know, if you say to me, I just can't get out of my way, I just can't stop fucking up. Like what that says to me is you don't want to stop. Sure. Because if you stop, now what? Then you're gonna be, people are gonna count on you. Yeah. And then now you really got something. Well, yeah, because that's that now now you're now you're gonna be you're more of an enemy trying to do right than doing what everybody else is doing. If I obey and I I'm obedient and I serve my brothers and sisters. When people see that, they will expect that. Yeah. And that's a responsibility that a person oftentimes doesn't want. Right. So <laughs> so now I'm now so I, I leave the the secular market and I go into this developing Christian underground music mm-hmm. market. And I was really surprised by how many people were showing up at these shows and wondering and asking myself, wow, I want are they are they interested in in this Jesus that I know about that I am trying to reestablish a connection and identity with? Hmm. That was so. That was so. All these pieces, all all this stuff was going on mm-hmm. um, with the development of that record and the writing of it. And um, you know, LA life was hard, you know, because it's like I'm I'm pursuing I, I'm I'm pursuing this rock music thing. So you know, and I do it balls to the wall so a day job's going to get in the way and you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so there's there's poverty involved there's a, a fledging baby family i'm developing and having these kids and man there's a lot of a lot there's a lot going on yeah i was so irresponsible at the time that i wasn't even aware of people's <laughs> the weight on people's shoulders you know <laughs> and i was also uh, I never questioned whether or not any of the people at those shows were really sincerely seeking Jesus. I was more concerned about whether or not uh, whether or not God was going to reveal what a fraud I was. So <laughs> <laughs> I had other things on my mind as well. But I still, for what it's worth, 
I love remembering some of those shows. I love remembering the oh, I do too. The water balloon incident of uh, Cornerstone, nineteen eighty nine or ninety or whatever that was, and the many many shows played together. The sweaty walls. I love that. Yeah, the broken noses and the and and broken like bones popping out of skin from the shows. It was an amazing time. Yeah, and somehow survived. Yeah, we we survived it. We're all still alive. <laughs> Which is very surprising to me. <laughs> right? <laughs> How old are you now? 45? Yeah, 45. I'm 51, dude. Whoa. What? Grandpa, grandfather of two. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Dude, man, we had a birthday party for both my grandkids because they're a day apart. Mm-hmm. Five-year-old and one-year-old. That's awesome, dude. It is. It's amazing. I'm not even close. Can you believe Christina and I are still together? <laughs> N- no. <laughs> I thought for sure she'd have buried you in the backyard by now. Dude. <laughs> everyone, why does everyone say that. something like that? Am I that much of a dick? <laughs> Am I really that bad? The answer's in the question, Blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Ah, uh, yes. Sin disease. My thanks to Alan Aguirre, Sam West, and the lovely Ricky Michelle, and Dave Palmer for making that happen. And by the way, that bit from Ricky is just a portion of the talk she and I had regarding her new solo album, Push, and just her story. By all means, be sure to catch that one never was returns in earnest for what I'm calling season two, because I don't know what else to call it. Lots of changes, lots of good loot, and I think more than a few surprises including uh, the end of Ricky Michelle's little conversation for all you Stavesacre fans. That very first Scatter Few Jam was from their collection Out of the Attic, but every other song of theirs you've heard today comes from the Burnt Toast Vinyl re-release of Sin Disease. We're going to put a link on the show page, so please click on there and get you some. We also just heard a little snippet from Anathema off of Stavesacre's first album, Friction. Any other music you heard on today's show is from my band White Lighter's self-titled debut on Northern Records. This show was produced by Billy Power of Urban Achiever Podcast. You can find this and all previous episodes of Never Was on iTunes or at iNeverWas.com. Two quick notes. If you'd like to support the show, please visit our Patreon link on the show page and drop a buck or two in the tip jar. Also, if you'd like to write in and be part of the show, please email me at thetwilightsown at ineverwas.com. That's thetwilightsown, no Z's, at ineverwas.com. Your emails have taken a slight back burner as I've tried to figure out how to do this uh, and still have you all be involved. Uh, I think I found the answer to that and to a few other mysteries we've run into in this first year, so please stick around. I always have and always will want to hear from you and have you be heard. We're going to get this right. Till then, thank you all for a great first year. See you very, very soon. Be good. Rainbow out. Somewhere at the dark end of the street